You're listening to Mr. Open Banking, the only podcast dedicated to exploring the open banking movement. Whether you're a financial expert, banking executive, or everyday consumer, open banking affects everyone and will change the way we interact with our money. I'm A.L. Saman, your host. This episode is brought to you by Axway, leaders in enterprise integration for over 20 years. There is little doubt that the birthplace of open banking is Europe. As a concept, open banking can be traced to much earlier times, but it was Europe who, in 2015, enacted the first open banking legislation in the form of PSD2. The first recognition by governments that the financial ecosystem was falling behind, and the first attempt to use regulation as an engine of financial innovation. Fast forward to today, and Europe is reaping the rewards of being the first mover. Thousands of banks and hundreds of fintechs are now leveraging open banking to communicate with each other, using common, secure standards, driving an explosion of innovative financial products and services all across the EU. Thanks to open banking, Europe has begun to embrace the inevitable disruption of the financial sector. After being compelled to open up their data, the smart banks have gone further, adding value on top of open banking and setting their sights on the coming age of embedded finance. But it isn't all good news. While Europe seems united behind common legislation, there have been delays and confusion. What works for some countries doesn't necessarily work for others, leading to a further lack of clarity. So, while Europe was indeed first, other regions are quickly catching up, as open banking spreads around the world. On this episode, we're going to hear from someone who has witnessed the rise of European open banking up close and personal. We'll learn how open banking began, where it is today, and where it's leading. Panagiotis Criaris has been at the forefront of global open banking since it began. He has spent his career at the intersection of business and technology, bringing senior expertise to financial services across the board, including banking, payments, fintech, and e-commerce. Panagiotis brings an intriguing perspective to our show, having worked across all sectors of banking, including the retail, SME, and corporate sides, all in multiple countries across Europe. Today, Panagiotis is the head of business development at Unzer, a payment services provider based in Germany, bringing innovation, digitization, customer experience, and partnership expertise wherever he goes. Panagiotis, great to have you on our show. Great to be here. Why don't we start with a bit of a history lesson? Share with us your perspective on open banking in Europe. How did it come to be? What is this PSD2 thing we've been hearing so much about? I would say that PSD2 is a, is a long story in Europe. So it's not the story of, uh, of a few months. Let's say Europe is very well known because PSD2, as they call it, comes from the Payment Services Directive 2, because there was uh, a first one as well. So this is the second one. And it basically regulates how open banking has been introduced in Europe. 
the main difference between what's happening in Europe and what has been happening in other markets, the U.S. being a key example, is the fact that uh, I would say that in the U.S. the need has been coming from the from the business. So basically, you have some banks, some players, some fintechs, and they have been realizing, for example, that there is a need to maybe be able to share the data, but it's up to them to decide what they want to do with the data. And if they want, for example, you have an incumbent, a bank, and they decide in the US if they want to be able to share this with third parties or not. That's purely their decision. Now, in Europe, I think we had the opposite idea, meaning that the regulator came and said, guys, this is what I want to do. I want to facilitate basically what we call uh, open banking. And this has to be regulated only because you have so many countries and only because from experience, everybody has a a feeling that in Europe, things tend to be more regulated than uh, in other, let's say, parts of the world. So I think part of the the idea and the reason is, uh, is coming from there. And part is coming from the fact that it could not have been an easy exercise to do it otherwise. So in terms of dates, if we have to go back in time, I would start probably in 2013. I think this is when the EU has released a a proposal for PST2. And then you have some discussions that have been taking place uh, throughout the years. Uh, In 2015, you have the the PST2 adopted by the EU parliament. And you also have, I think at the end of this year, some uh, initial discussions on strong customer authentication, which is one of the main pillars of PST2. So in 2015, we see the initial uh, draft of this. And then we have additional discussions uh, throughout the years. And basically, I would say the key date is uh, 2018, the 13th of uh, January, whereby PST2 has been transposed into local legislation. And that's a key point, and maybe we can explain what we mean by this. So although you have PST2 being a legislation that is EU-wide, the implementation has been given to the local level, to the countries. Now, another common misconception is that PSD2 introduces actual standards, but that is not the case. PSD2 and the local modifications were just the regulation, the legislation. The standards came later. Can you tell us a little bit about that relationship between the legislation and the actual API standards. So this is coming at the surprise of many people that there is no API recommendation or no API standardization. And maybe if we go one step back, uh, basically APIs are enabling PST2. So API is a technology. I mean, imagine if we would need a translator, I would say that the API is the translator. So it enables two parties to kind of be able to cooperate and work on the technical side. So API is the enabler of PST2, and despite uh, this being a fact, we don't have uh, the EU, or let's say EBA, which is the European Banking Authority, defining how this is going to look like or how this is going to work. If I try to interpret uh, the reasons for this, I would attribute this to the time. So if you go back to the timeline and to how these uh, things have been developing and all these deadlines in terms of gradual evolution and uh, an adoption of PST2. I think this is one. The second one, however, being that uh, the idea here was to be tech agnostic. So they didn't want to kind of provide the privilege or to any private 
kind of sector or technology or define this or influence this in any way. So it's a bit strange because you are talking about the regulation, but in this aspect, they left it kind of uh, onto the market to decide who is, let's say, the best. The open banking APIs went live in 2018. Can you give us your view of the current state of affairs? Is open banking meeting its stated objectives? It's probably early to call. I think we see, I don't think that you can attribute the revolution that's happening over the past years in Europe and elsewhere only to open banking. I think this is related up to a specific extent. I think we do see many initiatives, many fintechs, quite a lot of innovation happening lately. If I have to calculate how many banks and how many third-party providers, so these are the so-called TPPs, are now kind of part of the game, I would say that more than 5,000 banks had to open up their gates through the APIs. And I would say that uh, in terms of TPPs, so the third-party providers, I think we, we should have in Europe at the moment more than uh, 400. Although I don't think that uh, you can have somebody saying that there was a, a huge revolution coming from, say, this uh, fact alone. I think if we look at the market, we see a number of companies that have been uh, changing the, the landscape. I mean, if you look at companies like, for example, uh, Nordigen, like uh, Yapili, like uh, Nordic API Gateway, there are, there are some companies that are active in this space, and I think they do make a difference. To recap, the Payment Services Directive 2, or PSD2 for short, was enacted by the European Parliament in 2015, on October 8th, to be exact, with the explicit goals of improving consumer choice and driving innovation in the financial sector. Then, as Panagiotis tells us, on January 13th, 2018, PSD2 came into force. And for the first time, banks were compelled to share their data using standard, open APIs. Capital O, capital B, open banking. However, the legislation didn't cover everything. In fact, it didn't even define a specific standard. This was left up to the market in each country to decide, leading to mixed results, with what some describe as a balkanization of standards. Nevertheless, today there are over 5,000 banks and 400 TPPs engaged in open banking. But our guest is quick to point out that quantity isn't everything. Quality is what really counts. And on that score, Europe has been churning out fintech innovators at an alarming pace. To be sure, the disruption of banking in Europe started before PSD2. But the emergence of open banking has poured fuel on the fintech fire. So that's my next question to Panagiotis. What exactly is happening to banking? I think what is happening to banking, uh, you can call it a disintermediation of banking, meaning that if you go a lot of years before, you will see, let's say, the, the incumbents, the banks uh, having a kind of an oligopoly on the market and being the only ones able to provide the financial services and products. And now you kind of had, let's say, the disintermediation of financial services, meaning that if you, for example, go to a supermarket, you are able to choose from different offerings and different uh, players. 
So this has been happening through the, the fintechs. And what the fintechs have been doing is that they have been focusing on the customer experience. So the customer experience has been very poor. So I don't think that they were changing mainly the, the essence of the product or of the offering, but they tried to do it a bit more customer friendly and adjust it to what the customer would like to see. A term you often hear in relation to this banking disruption is bank as a service or bank as a platform. What do people mean when they talk about banks becoming platforms? So I think banking as a service is, some people call it uh, embedded finance or embedded banking. It refers to providing financial services from non-financial services players. One of the best examples I can find, imagine if you take a taxi, let's assume that you take Uber, and at at the end of the ride, you have to pay by cash. What would this do to the customer experience? So the fact that they don't have to take out my wallet and pay the taxi driver, but the payments side of things is embedded in this, let's say, in the customer journey, in the checkout process. This is what the embedded banking is all about. So this is banking as a service. The fintechs are offering non-financial experiences, but when the time comes in their apps or their experiences to give me some sort of financial service, they embed that banking into their flow, call the banking platform of choice via API, and provide me with a loan or a trade or a transfer or whatever other financial service I need, correct? Exactly this. And on the other hand, you can say that it's basically like being in a position to rent services that I need. So even though I'm not a financial services provider, I can offer financial services, but I rent the services. I actually bring them to my environment, integrate them into an offering, and I rent whatever infrastructure is needed so that I can do the job that I need. You described banks and fintechs as being on opposite sides of the same coin. Fintechs on the consumer side, embedding finance, embedding banking in their experiences. Banks on the platform side, offering up those capabilities through APIs. What would you say the different challenges are that these two groups are facing? I just wanted to make a differentiation between the fact that uh, at the end of the day, we have one concept and this concept can have two different, let's say, realizations. And the fact is, going going back to your initial question that uh, you have the, the banks and, and you have the, the fintechs, I think we increasingly see them competing in the same arena. So banks can be fintechs and fintechs can be banks. Correct. So banks could only offer, as we said before, just one product. If you like it, you take it. If you don't like it, you don't take it or you go to somebody else. So now they have additional options through open banking. They can take services through APIs from potentially fintech, and they can uh, put it on top of their offerings. I'm not going to say that this is easy. So I don't think that this is easy because from one day to the other, you just have to change the whole concept of what you have been doing up to now. So that's one thing. And this is the challenge for banks. On the other hand, uh, every challenge comes with an opportunity. And I think for the fintechs, the challenge is that the next level of the game cannot focus on the same stuff that they have been uh, trying out and succeeding with, let's say, at the beginning, meaning customer experience and customization. 
they need to find something else and they also need to find a business model which is viable because we have been seeing all kinds of companies having and enjoying all kinds of uh, crazy valuations without much profit. But I think it takes a COVID crisis to realize that uh, some of these business models are not viable. That's the challenge for, for some of them, I would say. Let's zoom in on that very subject, business models. Many of our listeners work at those large banks who are struggling to find their place in this disruption. Why do you think large banks often struggle to find that business case for open banking? Even if you do find the business case for open banking, let's say that you that you did find the business case and let's say that you do have everybody aligned. Even if you do this, I think you have a lot of organizational topics that you have to deal with, a lot of IT topics that you have to deal with, and a lot of cultural topics that you have to deal with. Bringing all of this together is never an easy exercise. So I think if you have an organization used to do things in a very specific way and deliver in a, in a specific way and have a revenue model which is based on a brick and mortar, let's say, set up for the past uh, many, many years. And now they realize that they have to change overnight or they have to adapt. It's not the easiest thing in the, in the world. And size, of course, counts. I mean, it's not a tiny fintech that is based on the cloud and they can switch from one day to the other. This is a transformation that is taking uh, time is taking effort and has to be coordinated. And a best case scenario is that all these things are coming from top down. So there is a decision made on the top, let's say, ranks of the business that this is the strategy. This is what we want to do. This is how we are going to implement. This is what we are going to get. And this is why it makes sense. And then we go and do it. But how many examples like this do you have? And how many organizations are, go, are ready to go through this kind of transformation? which most of the times doesn't take months, but uh, may take years. Just like photography, music, and travel before it, the banking industry is being disrupted. Day after day, fintechs are introducing entirely new experiences and products that slowly change what it means to bank. But where is this all going? Many say the future points to embedded finance. Embedded finance, or embedded banking, refers to having banking capabilities seamlessly integrated into non-banking experiences. There's a very low-tech version of this that most people are familiar with, the car loan. Car dealerships leveraged the power of embedded finance a long time ago. When they realized that they were losing deals at the end because getting a loan was too complex, they embedded a specialized product at the end of the car buying experience. A more current example, as Panagiotis suggests, would be Uber. With Uber, we all started to see what embedded finance looks like in digital form. To prepare for the world of embedded finance, banks are becoming platforms. Whether they call it bank as a service, bank as a platform, open APIs, or even open banking, they are all on the same journey. Unbundling their capabilities, offering them as APIs, and inviting developers 
to embed those API-driven products in their digital experiences. Make no mistake, this transformation won't be easy. According to Panagiotis, this is not a journey of months, but one of years. Are any banks getting it right? That's where we pick things up. Can you give us any examples of large banks that have embraced this opportunity presented by open banking, not just on the fintech side, but on the bank side? Yes, I do think that we have some successful uh, examples of uh, incumbents of of banks. Take uh, Goldman Sachs, for example, or take Santander. These are players that they have realized that they cannot do everything alone. And if I have to name, let's say, one other successful uh, example of a bank that has been able to to adjust, I think uh, we don't have to look farther than uh, DPS. They have managed to kind of transform themselves in a few years' time and become one of the most uh, modern and successful banks, uh, maybe even, even globally. In Europe, in the UK, those in the open banking community have sometimes started to say, oh, open banking is old news. The new thing is open finance. In the UK, they've introduced the pensions dashboard, which is another attempt to open up financial data. Is there a PSD3 on the horizon? Yes, I think there is a PSD3 on the horizon, but it's too early to call the need for a PSD3 because we are now at the moment of understanding what is working from PSD2 and what's not working from PSD2. We are now kind of at the, at the stage where one of the pillars of PSD2, which is a Strong Customer Authentication, SCA, is kind of, let's say, being enforced after all these uh, delays or postponements. Quick explanation here. SCA stands for Strong Customer Authentication. You know how when you log into an app and it needs both your password and something else like a face scan or a code? Well, that is now being enforced for certain open banking transactions. So I would say that uh, even though I hear some voices saying that, okay, how will uh, PSD3 look like and what are the things, I do think that it's quite early to say, first of all, when we're going to have a PSD3, because I think this is going to sometime still. And second of all, what are the things that PSD3 has to improve versus PSD2? Because mainly it's going to be about improving what is not working in PSD2. And I don't think that we have a good view of what has not been working yet in PSD2. I think we do have some some hits, if you may. But I do think that we need still uh, additional time in terms of understanding what has been working well and what has not been working well. But I give you right in terms of open finance. I mean, even if you call it open banking or if you call it open finance, which is, let's say, an evolution of open banking, at the end of the day, the discussion is around an open economy, opening up financial services to competition and to more players that can foster innovation. And there are two things that are going to play a critical role uh, in this revolution. One is technology. And the other one is data. So it's not only being able to access data, because that is what open banking is about, but it's also what do you do with the data? And I think what we have seen so far from many of these players that have been acting in this open banking space in Europe and and globally 
is that many of them have realized that a business model which is based on giving access to data based on open banking is probably not the model that they were looking for. So I see a trend of companies and open banking players saying, okay, I give you access to the to the data based on open banking. And on top of this, I have an additional layer and I build innovative services. And this is my business model. And I think that's very valid because it doesn't matter if you have data unless these data are rich and actionable data. So you can do something with this data. If you had to compare the different countries in Europe, which would you say are furthest ahead and which still have some work to do? I wouldn't take in in terms of who is more advanced and who is less advanced, but I, I would say that you can find differences among the many countries in Europe. Let's give you an example. So let's take the two biggest markets in Europe, France, and let's take Germany. If you compare the two markets, I think you could say that you have some, let's say, things working in a different way in Germany and in a different way in France. So some things are more advanced in France and some things are more advanced in Germany. But I don't think that you can have an overall ranking. So let's take France. I think that 80% of the market in France is a credit card based. If you go to Germany and you switch, you see exactly the opposite role and in the opposite picture. So in Germany, cash is king. Germany has been one of the most lucrative or relevant markets for buy now, pay later products with the so-called invoice product, which is not known in other markets. So the fact that I can buy something and instead of paying in installments, for example, I get an invoice and I pay the invoice, although I have received the product. So in some markets, this notion cannot work, but in Germany, it's working very, very well because of cultural reasons. Then you have the question, okay, who is more advanced? And I would say that it's not who is more advanced, but who is more, let's say, mature in this specific kind of segment and what kind of habits you have on these markets and how are these connected to each other? Fascinating. So success at open banking is really tied into the culture of that particular country. Certain things will work in one place, but not in others. Correct. I mean, if you see Europe versus the US versus other continents, I think many people have the understanding, they say Europe, they understand one thing, and uh, they might have it on their head so that they might have it as a homogeneous kind of, let's say, thing. But it's not the case. And if we take, for example, if we take uh, PSD2, the fact that PSD2 has been transposed or translated into this local regulation, I think, is one sign. I have personal experience because I've been working in many European countries. And fact is that if you don't have local roots, cultural, And language-wise, you're not able to win contracts. So even if you have a product that is working well in one of the markets, normally, in most of the cases, you have to adjust how you're going to offer it. It it doesn't go beyond, for example, the payment preference. As we said before, the payment preference in, uh, in Germany is different than in France. So if I want to launch a proposition, I have to take this into account. So what is working in one country might not be work in the other country. And also uh, legislation might be different. So taking again the comparison between Germany and France, most of the time you need to hire local lawyers to kind of try to understand what uh, the best model is going to be. So there is still some way to go in terms of harmonizing the market in Europe. 
And I think that legislations and initiatives like the PST2 are also having this as a target, how they are going to make the market, say, more homogeneous so that you can foster innovation. Goldman Sachs, Santander, DBS, some of the largest banks in the world have come to accept that they can't do this alone. And they also accept that this transformation is inevitable. Whether you call it open banking or open finance or embedded finance or anything else, the goal is the same, to create an open economy which fosters innovation. Europe is still learning what worked with PSD2 and what didn't, so our guest is careful to warn us that discussions of PSD3 are still premature. But the rumblings are already there. Early adopters are starting to learn what works too. Business models have started to emerge that generate real value instead of just fighting over commoditized functions. The smartest fintechs have evolved beyond the customer experience, taking the basic building blocks of open banking APIs and building intelligence on top of them, leading towards financial nooks and crannies that today remain undiscovered. Culture matters too, it turns out. New kinds of financial products might work in one country, but not in another. This misunderstanding has led to as many fintech failures as successes. But there is no question that when it comes to open banking legislation and real implemented open banking standards, Europe remains the leader, especially if you still count the UK, making it a great place for others to start. What can the world learn from Europe's open banking experience? First of all, it has to do with the approach. As we said before, if you go to the U.S., applying something similar in the U.S., I think certainly is not something that can fly because they have taken a market-led approach. So I think you have to take all the learnings from Europe with a grain of salt and try to understand what fits and what doesn't fit. So most of the times, the learnings are not something that we can kind of transpose one-to-one, but you have to also consider what is the market uh, behind and what are the local preferences. We are still at the phase of understanding what is working and what is not working. What is working, I think, is uh, having criteria and standards and a definition of how things should be working. On the other hand, there are a couple of things that uh, might have also uh, having different impact. So one might be the API specification, for example. So leaving this uh, up to the market, it creates problems because uh, if you are a player and uh, wants to understand, okay, this is what I want to do, which is going to be the API specification that I want to follow. It's not clear cut, 100% clear what I want to do, what I need to do, and what is the best, let's say, model to follow. So that might be something that can work in a better way. Now, if you're in the market, like in the US, that is market-led, and you don't want to impose things on companies and on the market, what might be a good idea so that you have a body regulating the API certification and kind of, let's say, being on top. That might be an idea. The other thing that is a good learning experience to my understanding from from what we have seen in Europe so far, I think there is a lot of innovation in terms of uh, use cases and scenarios 
coming from the fact that uh, we do have this regulation and everybody has to follow the regulation. Maybe if we go one step back, just to mention that the open banking regulation has two pillars. One has to do with data and the other one has to do with uh, actionable payments. So, for example, I have five accounts over, let's say, five banks, but I want to consolidate their view in one bank. So this is open banking. What I do is that I can have all the information in one application. And on top of this, I can have additional uh, intelligence. So this is based on the data. The other thing is that I might be in a position to initiate a payment from an account. So these are the two things. And I think we see a lot of innovative use cases coming from the various uh, players that are active in, uh, in Europe in terms of I do an account onboarding, I do a payment initiation, or I, in terms of transactions, I can access real-time financial data, cleaned up and categorized, or, for example, I do a credit check in terms of a loan. I have access to the accounts through open banking, and I can understand in a matter of seconds if this is a consumer profile that I would be willing to, to provide a loan to or not. As we close out our discussion, a more personal question. You're very active on LinkedIn and you post a lot of wonderful infographics there. I'm a big fan. Do you have perhaps a favorite? <laughs> Thank you for this. I don't have a favorite. Uh, what I'm trying to do, is, uh, let's say every day, and this is also part of my business, I follow the market. I try to, to follow interesting things happening. And uh, based on what is happening, I most of the case in most of the cases, I have a, a judgment. So if this is something that is working or if it's not working. The main topics, again, that I see coming up, I think we discussed most of them today. So open banking or open finance is, uh, is certainly one. Banking as a service, I think we mentioned. Platforms, so platformification. There is a famous, uh, a very good analysis that is showing that uh, 10 years ago, if you, if you take the top 10 financial institutions globally, all of them were traditional banks. If you see how many of them are left today, this is uh, half of them, and the, and the rest is platforms. For those of you out there looking for amazing infographics on open banking and indeed banking disruption in general to add to your PowerPoint decks, I highly recommend Panagiotis' LinkedIn feed. Panagiotis, where can our guests find out more about you and your work at Unzer? They can follow our website on Unzer, uh, definitely. I think they will find a lot of, uh, lots of interesting stuff. As you said, and I'm very thankful for this, they can also uh, follow my LinkedIn uh, profile. I'm accessible and av available for any useful uh, discussions always. So feel free to reach out and I will be happy to, to have a discussion. Panagiotis, thank you so much for being on our show. The pleasure was mine. Thank you very much. The disruption of the banking sector is now well underway. More and more, consumers are choosing financial products from non-traditional players. These fintechs have raised the bar for digital banking, and now banks are transforming themselves into platforms in an effort to keep up. Thanks to PSD2, the world's first open banking regulation, Europe has become a stage for this dance between fintechs and banks. Together, they are using common, open standards 
to build the future of banking. A future that embraces the notion of embedded finance. If open banking is the how, then embedded finance is the why. By standardizing the APIs, open banking allows network effects to take hold, dramatically accelerating the platformification of banking and bringing us ever closer to embedded finance, a world where banking services are ambient and invisible, there when you need them and gone when you don't. Although open banking started in Europe, it has now become a global phenomenon. And there are indeed things others can learn from the European experience. If you're trying to implement open banking, have clear success criteria up front, promote common standards, and define your players. Make sure you've got a clear path to a real API specification. Don't expect the market to figure it out without help. If you are market-driven, consider a consortium model like FDX in the US. But in the end, it all comes back to the use cases, what you can actually do with open banking. Whether it's opening an account faster, seeing all your accounts in one place, sending money to a friend, managing your spending, getting a loan, investing your savings, or getting advice from a real person, open banking makes it easier. It also finally makes it possible to have your banking work with the other parts of your life. So you can bank less. And that's really what it's all about. Banking. Only better. The way it's supposed to be in the digital age. Thanks for listening to Mr. Open Banking, the podcast that explores the ongoing evolution of open banking and its impact on our lives. Make no mistake, the rise of open banking is going to change financial services forever, and we will be covering that story every step of the way. This is your host, A.L. Savan. Until next time. This episode was made possible by Axway, leaders in enterprise integration for over 20 years and creators of the Amplify platform. To learn more, visit axway.com.